it's interesting because we, as we start this new series, as Jason and I started going through it, he said, hey, listen, would you mind preaching this message? Because, you know, you're a little older and you've been married a little bit longer than me and it might be better if it was coming from you. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. And then as I got into the message, I realized that's not why he gave it to me. But uh, <laughs> it's one of those messages that where it's going to be really awkward. It was very uncomfortable for me this week. So it's going to be very uncomfortable for you today. And so part of the issue is that, you know, when you preach, you sometimes don't wonder what people are going to be saying or thinking about your message after you leave. I know what you're all going to be saying today, and it's going to be, I can't believe he said that. That's what's going to be coming right off the tongue. And it's kind of interesting because there's going to be some awkward moments, and I know there's awkward moments all the time. Like last week, uh, Jason was preaching, and he said, uh, uh, I want to whack him upside the head for the glory of God, right? And I'm thinking, did he, he, really, did he really mean that? And so at staff meeting, I said, hey, I, you said that. Did you really mean it? And he reached over and biffed me in the head and said, praise Jesus. <laughs> no, nah, I'm just kidding you. He didn't say praise Jesus. <laughs> he didn't biff me either, but that's okay. It's just kind of, kind of funny. It's kind of interesting. I said, so today we're going to be talking about adultery or infidelity, right? And so I think a couple facts that are really interesting. These kind of shocked me as I was doing my research. 65% of males, this is unbelievable when you think about it, 55% of females have had an affair before 40. Isn't that interesting? Staggering when you think about it. Women tend to cheat for emotional satisfaction. Men tend to cheat more for sexual motivation. Uh, women cheaters are better off at not getting caught than men. So if men, if you're going to have an affair, make sure it's with a woman so you don't get caught. I'm just kidding there. I'm being sarcastic. A study in the Journal of Cyber Psychology argues that social networking such as Facebook lead to reconnect with old flings, which in turn is leading to more and more affairs and divorces. Isn't that interesting? The percentage of all Americans who believe that an affair is always wrong is 81.7%. Yet 65% of the men are doing it and 55 of the women are doing, and the percentage of Americans who have had an affair who believe that it was, it was always wrong is almost 63%. Did you realize that adultery is illegal still in 23 states? Did you know that? Now, the, the, now the punishment ranges from a $10 fine to, in one state, life imprisonment, right? But I, I, I don't know if we realize that how, when God spoke those five words in Genesis chapter 20 verse 14 you shall not commit adultery how difficult it would be for most people to obey the bible says that we're supposed to leave and cleave and forsake all others and let me tell you something i've done a lot of marital counseling and a lot of premarital counseling and you know, nobody thinks they're going to have an affair everybody's you know bright-eyed and all in love, and they're getting married, and never think that's, they don't even contemplate it, or it's a possibility. One of the things I've seen in a lot of marital counseling, when they ask couples, you know, they get to this point where they become at an impasse, and they can't make it work, what are they going to choose, divorce or separation? To me, those are the wrong two answers. The answer should be, we will make it work. We'll figure out a way to make it work, because those aren't options, and nor should they be. To me, the problem is there's this subtle drift that happens in life once we get married. It used to, everybody used to say it's a seven-year itch is when the most uh, um, affairs happen, but 
nowadays it's really the seven-month itch. A lot of, almost 10 or 15%, depending on what you're reading, uh, affairs happen within seven months of marriage. The next biggest time is right after you have a kid. It's kind of interesting, right? Speaks to some vulnerability. It, and, and, and I think that we don't recognize that Jesus understood that as we walk through this Christian life that there's going to be issues and influences. In Matthew 13, Mark 13, he says, Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. In life, we have to be careful who we're following, what voices, what narrative, and where it's taking us, because it will lead us astray. It's interesting because as you walk through life, you, you get the impression that the Bible says to follow that path, right? To follow Christ. And as we're walking on that path, it's amazing how sometimes we start to drift. And before you know it, we fall off the cliff. And you hear it all the time, I didn't mean for this to happen. I, didn't, I, I wasn't planning on this. I just fell in love. Nobody falls in love. It's a process. The enemy understands that adultery takes time to orchestrate. But we're also part of the issue too, right? It's not always the enemy's fault. James 1 says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then the desires, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Isn't that interesting? So today, I want to kind of come up with six easy steps to commit adultery. The first one is surround yourself with compromised Christians, right? People who really aren't going to stand up for the word of God, and they're going to say things like, that's Old Testament. Oh, that's where grace comes in. You know, all these different things. But think about this. 25% of those who responded to a survey conducted by Ashley Madison, which is an internet site for those seeking affairs, 25% were born-again evangelicals. One out of four. 22%, 22 22.7% were Catholics, and 21.1% were Protestants. Kind of paints a dim picture when you think about it as we scan across Christendom. So surround yourself with compromising Christians who aren't going to really affect your life in any way and sort of encourage you to pursue happiness and not character and contentment. The next one is neglect your marriage. Focus on your career. Focus on money, entertainment, hobbies, hunting, or spend your life in all your kids' activities. Anything you can do, sports, that'll separate you. So you become roommates with shared expenses. And avoid intimacy. No sex. And if you do, make it boring and predictable. And if you need something else, get on pornography or phone sex, which I totally don't understand. But that's another point. Enjoy common interests and form an emotional bond with someone else because the statistics show that 60% of affairs start at work. Find that old flame on Facebook. Share your frustrations with your marriage and your spouse. And here's the other thing. Anticipate time together. When you find that person, start to think and even lost. Find yourself preparing for an encounter. For men, that means, you know, finally wear clothes that match and shoes that match, right? It sort of means getting a haircut with a little style in it and actually combing it. For women, if you got it, show it. 
flaunt it. So we invent reasons to connect with someone or be in that vicinity. Then the fifth one is whenever possible, flirt. For guys, that's not, don't take your advice from Joey Tribbiani. How you doing? That's not going to cut it anymore. You can't flex. You can't do any of those things. You got to be sensitive. You got to be emotional. You got to be like a millennial instead of connect there, right? Uh, you know, don't stay away from email because that's easily detected. Texting is better if you delete them. Better yet, just leave a voicemail. You know, flirt, flirt, and flirt. Subtle touch, occasional compliments, suggestive comment, buy flowers, be present, be attentive. Ladies, I think it all it takes for you is the flip of the hair. That seems to get it for most guys, right? I don't know why, but it seems to work. Next, make an excuse and rationalize your actions. Makes all sort of excuses. Tell yourself, my spouse isn't meeting my needs. My spouse is not the person I once married. My spouse doesn't understand me. We've grown apart. Hey, I didn't sign up for this. The number one reason people say they have affairs is because they don't pay attention to me anymore. Joe Theismann once said when he had a, uh, left his wife for someone else, his wife of 20-something years for a younger woman, said, God wants me to be happy. That is just a lie from the pit of hell. God wants you obedient. To me, I think we don't realize it. Isn't it amazing? The thing that kind of perplexes me is that women will not date a guy who lives with his mother, but they'll date a guy who's living with his wife. Isn't it interesting? Funny thing on Dear Abby, a guy wrote, Dear Abby, I'm in love and I'm having an affair with two different women other than my wife. I love my wife, but I love these other women too. Please tell me what to do, but don't give me any of that morality stuff. Seems to be our culture today. I love how she responded. She signed, she said, and he signed it, too much love for only one. That was his signature, right? So she says this, dear too much love for only one. The only difference between humans and animals is morality. Please write to a veterinarian. <laughs> right? Now, of course, I'm being sarcastic. If you're here without your spouse, don't run home and say, hey, the pastor taught me how to have an affair. That's not the point of the message. The point of the message, I'm being sarcastic, and maybe if you're paying attention, it may be some kind of things you can look for to see if your spouse is having an affair. But when you think about it, I think that unfortunately as a pastor, it's all too familiar a story that follows and flows out of marriages today, even inside the church. Did you know that Baptists have the highest divorce rate of any Christian denomination? Higher than agnostics and atheists by a lot. So it's an epidemic, it's an issue. And 10% of the affairs happen within the first year. To me, the best way to deal with a lie, the best way to deal with a narrative that seems to be you know, capturing the vast majority of people is to expose it to the light, amen? John 3.20 says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. When you're in an affair like King David was, you do what? You lie, you deceive, and you do things you don't normally do, normally do to cover up the evil you're doing. And you live in darkness. To me, I think that when we look at the, the, the current state of marriage in America, the current state of marriage in the church, we need to do a couple things that I think are really important. First, 
We need to do whatever it takes to reduce the risks, right? Everything it takes to reduce the risks. Proverbs, as we read earlier, earlier in the passage, it says this in verses 7 through 10, Proverbs 5. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remember, this is Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, explaining this to his own kids, right? He's giving them some advice. And he says, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take the fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. The problem for God is the line of sin is not right for us when we're walking with God. It's not right here. It's way over here. He wants us far from that line, far from that edge, so that we're not even contemplating it. Many of us live right there. Right alongside it, thinking that we have the power to overcome or the power to resist. And that, too, is a lie. Matthew 5, 28, Jesus, you know, God said, don't commit adultery. Here's what Christ said. Matthew 5, 28, I, I want you all to read this with me really quick. Ready? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent already committed adultery with her in his heart. He took it from an act to a thought, right? Because the Bible says how a man thinketh, so he is, and that's what he does. So for us to really overcome this, and for this not to be an issue in our marriages, we need to guard our eyes, guard our mind, and guard our hearts. So let me ask you a question for all of you. If I could follow you around this week and take a video of all your interactions, would you be proud if I showed that to your spouse? If I could look at all your emails and send them to your spouse, would you be okay with those emails, those text messages? Because that's the way we should live. My wife has access to everything I have, right? She's my phone, my email, you know, uh, you know, my computer. There's accountability there. It helps you to guard what you do and say because you know someone else cares and is watching, right? It should be what motivates us. So the question for you today, if you're thinking, oh, I wouldn't want that email, or I wouldn't want her to hear that conversation, or I wouldn't want her to see that, you got some work to do. Next thing I think we have to do is keep a growing relationship with Christ. Pastor Jason is going to talk about that next week. Because the reality is if you're in God's word and you're being led by the Spirit, whenever you start to sin, the Holy Spirit is going to convict you and guide you to do what? Repent and walk further away from that line that you had drawn. That's the whole point of the Christian life is we need that wisdom, that discernment, Christ walking on, alongside of us so it's not easy to cross any lines anymore. Here's another one that I hear all the time. Never talk badly about your marriage with the wrong people. I would go on to say don't talk badly about your marriage, period. If you got issues and you're in a, in, a, in a counseling situation, you can talk edifying. The Bible says let no coarse talking come out of your mouth. It also says, says that which is good for lifting each other up. You can talk about difficult things in a way that isn't degrading or demeaning. That's a skill set I think we need to really grasp in the church. I can be upset and we can talk through something in a way that what makes us both better. I think that was the beauty of what happened with me and Jason last week. He talked about it in a sermon. It was good. It was good. 
Still don't ask what it was, but it was good. To me, when you talk about it, it's amazing how misery loves company, right? And you open up a door and you start believing your own narrative, right? When you're focusing on the negative things, Philippians tells us to focus on whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is noteworthy. Think about those things. Everyone has something good about them. Everyone has something that we can grab onto and, and focus on. Instead, we have to choose which side of a person's perspective and personality we look at. Always on the negative or do we want to be positive? And uplifting, knowing that God can work. But when you, when you have those conversations, sometimes with the wrong people, they think that's an open door for them to step in and fill the gap and void. And you're opening it up. You're opening the door, right? Don't give the devil a foothold. Sometimes we do it ourselves. Never be alone with the wrong people. Not only just for the appearance of that. I make it a rule of thumb in business that I never go to lunch or dinner or anything else with a person of the opposite sex, no matter what their relationship with me at the office. That's a, I get that it's a tough thing in the business world, and I get that sometimes, you, you know, it depends on where you're at. There are certain things that happen, but let me tell you something. If it's something that's going to cause you to compromise, let me say this. It's easier to get another job than it is to get another wife for your children, or mother for your children, and another home for them. Let me tell you that for sure. It's easier to get another job, and you should do it. We should keep our path far from those people because you know when you put yourself in vulnerable places even the strongest will subside it also speaks of not going to the wrong places back in in verse 15 of proverbs 5 says drink water from your own cistern running water from your own well should your spring overflow in the streets your streams in the public squares let them be yours alone never be to shared with strangers just you and your spouse. Avoid inappropriate places and situations. It goes hand in hand. Facebook, your old stomping grounds, office parties, anything that will will focus around that, just recognize there's some places we should not be or go. Surround yourself with strong marriages. That's why growth groups are so important. I love our growth group. We have a lot of strong marriages and there are a lot of people that will hold you accountable. It's good for a married couple to be in communion with other married couples, right? And like in our Christian life, everybody should have a Paul that's going to draw them closer to Christ. Everybody should have a Barnabas that's going to help them fellowship them as they walk through life. And everybody kinds of needs a Timothy to help pull along and help them grow because you've been there and you've done things that they're going to experience. It makes sense even with your marriages, right? We all should have strong marriages around us. When I was first in the Christian life and went back before this ministry, I was in another ministry, and there was a, 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 a pastor emeritus. His name was Pastor Musser. Awesome, awesome guy. When I met him, he was married for, I don't know, like millennial. He was married forever. And, so, and I loved his wife, and they were such an awesome couple. They used, and they were cool, right? And, and they, they understood this subject really well. When they would, I, I used to love to send people getting marriage counseling to them because when they would talk about sex, they would all come out of there like, oh my gosh, right? You know, they would always say, hey, have sex early and often and all the time, right? And this is coming from, they think they were 85 at the time, right? But it's true, right? It's one of those things that God gives us as a gift in marriage. But surround yourself with strong marriages, people who are going to challenge you and people who can see inside your marriage to know, wait a minute, there's some stuff going on here. We've got to stay close to them. 
And the other thing is honor the institution. God created it for us. It's, it's, it's a picture of the gospel, the Bible says. Doesn't the Bible tell us to honor the marriage bed, to keep it holy? So we're supposed to submit, and we're supposed to love, and we're supposed to respect. That's what the gospel's all about. The next thing is we need to invest passionately in your marriage. Verse 18, may your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you never be intoxicated with her love. That's one of those verses that never gets an amen. You know what I mean? When you think about it, it's amenable, right? But nobody wants to say amen that. But it's true. It's in the word of God. And he goes on, why my son be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? That word intoxicated there comes from the Hebrew word shagah, right? Can you all say that? Shagah, ready? Shagah, right? What it means is to, it's, it's a picture actually, a word that's used for when an animal has conquered its prey and it's devouring it, right? It's ravishing its prey. It gives you this picture that it's consumed by the prey. And when he says that, he says, may you ever be intoxicated with your love. In other words, may you ever be shagah with your spouse and your wife. And shouldn't that be what it is? That we should be able to be satisfied with our spouse in a way that brings contentment. It also speaks to a kind of focusing of what they're doing. So in order to do that, in order to have that shagah in your marriage, you've got to be transparent. And what I mean by that in terms of translation, this is really for the men, is you've got to be able to share your feelings, not just your thoughts. This is a difficult thing for me. I'm good at sharing my thoughts, but I'm not as good always as sharing how I feel about things. But I know whenever I do, it really helps my wife, and it really helps us. And I would encourage you all to do that. Get away from those, just the thoughts. And the best way to do it, wives, is when you're talking to your husband, say, I get how you're thinking, but let me tell you something. How does it make you feel? Because then you go down that little deeper level where you're starting to understand what's happening. And when you get to that part of how things feel, it starts to change your perspective and your understanding to where you can relate to a deeper, much, much deeper, much more intimate level. The next one is just to be alone. Let me translate this one for you. It means be by yourselves. If you got kids, lock them up in a safe place for an hour at least. And, you know, you, you, you can have some time together. It's okay, but we need to learn to date again. You need to learn to date your wife even after you're married. In other words, spend time together. I know my wife, one of the things that she does is that even when we're not doing anything, she wants to be in the same room as I am just so that we're together, right? Yesterday I was working on my message and it's been, you know, the summer's been kind of hot. Well, yesterday was a beautiful day. I wanted to go out on the screen and porch. I turned the fan on. I went out there to do my message. And then later on she goes, well, why are you going out there? I said, well, it's just, you know, I've been out there in a while. And so then she came out there and we spent time together, which is kind of cool, right? She's doing her things, paying bills. I'm working on the message and <laughs> that's kind of cool, right? But you got to be alone together. You got to learn to date again. Then you got to be spiritual. You got to be in the Word of God. You got to have some spiritual relationships together. That is why I think our growth group is awesome. If you're not doing anything this week on Tuesday night, our growth group is giving their testimonies because then we're taking a break for August. And you want to hear some great testimonies? I'm going to tell you. Come Wednesday night. We're having pizza. But let me know if you're coming, if you just want to hear them. And if you've got a real good one, bring it. We'll share it. But that's what we're doing one, uh, Tuesday night here at the church at 7 o'clock. But that's what, you got to be spiritual. you got to be <coughs> intentional about keeping Christ 
vibrant in your marriage because you need them. You got to help. You, you, when you, all of you at your weddings t- probably talked about the cords of three strands can't, aren't, isn't easily broken. There's so much truth to that. Jesus brings you together even when you don't want to be together. Isn't that awesome? Because you got him in common. And the next is be discerning. Here's the thing. If you need help, get it. Ask for it. Go to those people who have the strong marriages. Go to your pastor. There's no shame in that. Nobody wants to say, I've fallen and I can't get up, and that's where they find you. Get help when things start to get a little difficult. Makes sense, right? This way you're not in the crisis situation. And you know, let me t- I always tell people when they come for marital counseling, I'll say, well, how long has this been going on? And usually it's years. And I always say this, we're not going to solve it tonight because whenever you have one of those crisis situations, Everybody wants you to point the finger at the other spouse and just tell them they're wrong. That's what they're there for. Tell them he's wrong and we can go home. Or tell them she's wrong and we can go home. And I always say this, however long it's taken you to get here, it's going to take about that long to work through it. You've got to be patient with the process. And it is a process. And so it's so true. As you've got to, when you need help, you've got to get it. Next is be intimate. Let me translate that for you. Have sex. It's, you have to do that, which means you have to get naked with each other and spend time with each other. It's that shagaw. And I see all these faces clenching, especially my wife's. <laughs> That's one of those things you'll say, oh, I can't believe you said that. But it's true. <clears throat> That's what marriage is about, one of the things. But it's one of those things that brings you together in a whole different way than everything else you do together. And when you withhold from your spouse, the Bible says don't do it. Isn't that interesting? There's a little chapter from Paul that says, hey, don't do that. It's amazing how many of us do it and how many of us haven't done it. It's a thing that we need to think about. It's in the Bible, folks. I can't help it. The last one is be proactive. And I think this is so fun. Our faith, our belief is a proactive faith. In other words, one of the surest ways I can keep from doing wrong is to not stray. In other words, not to stray off that path is to do what? To do what is right. The best defense is a good offense. It's following in obedience with respect to my marriage and family. If I'm seeking to be proactive when it comes to relating to my spouse, as I should, I will not find myself falling into patterns of relationships that would be destructive to my marriage. Right? And then should the day of evil come, I will be able to stand that test. Because I'm walking in a proactive manner. Because you know what? There's too much at stakes. If nothing else, your kids. Proverbs 27 says this, The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. You want your kids to have a good marriage? Model it in front of them. Not perfection, but real. Everybody has a radar for real, our kids. Be authentic in your marriage. And be patient. And the last, and sometimes I think is the most important, is contemplate the costs. Verse 21 in chapter 5 of Proverbs. For your ways, this is pretty profound, for your ways are in full view of the Lord. And he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sin holds them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray 
by their own great folly. Another part of Proverbs says, a man ruins, in his, in his own folly, a man ruins his life, but yet his heart rages against God. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it true? We ruin our own lives by our, 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 our undisciplined stupidity, and then we get mad at God for it. In the beginning of the chapter 5, in verse 3, it says this, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. In other words, she's seductive. There's an allure there. And her speech is smooth and an oil. She knows how to deceive and bring you in. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a double, two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol or hell. Isn't that interesting? What a picture that is. To me, I think of the cost, what it would do to my ministry and my testimony all these years in the church and how it would affect people. I think about it all the time. I think about how it would, if something I had to explain to my kids that I did something like that, how would it affect their respect for me and their uh, their admiring of me as a, a man who walks with God and what will that do to them and their psyche as they embrace difficulties in marriage because we know we all have them and how will they deal with that if they see me, someone who couldn't stand the test? What a price that is to pay. But most importantly, what it would do to my precious wife's spirit and disposition who has loved me and followed me and supported me and put up with me for the last 29 years. That would be the most devastating thing for me. Let me say this to you, and I don't suspect anyone here is in that situation, but you probably know people. And let me just tell you, here's the great deception. What people actually marry their forbidden lover, the one they're having an affair with? You ready? 3%. Three. And of those 3%, once they found their intimacy bliss, how many of them stay married? 75, over 75% of those marriages end in divorce. More importantly, when you ask those people who've committed an affair and, the, and who's got divorced because of their affair, 80% of those who divorced during an affair regret the decision. Regret the decision. Why? Because those relationships are based on lies and deception. They're in the dark. It feels real, but it's not. What is real is at home and is waiting for you. And sure is it not may not all be there. But when you get back to that home and honor the covenant that you made with God and you humbly repent and do whatever it takes to make it right, understandably those things are difficult. But here's the good news. That even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. And he is just. And he's willing to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that awesome? When we stray, when we're led astray, when we go astray, he is faithful even when we're not. That's grace. That's a picture that should help us no matter where we're at in our marriage, no matter how we've got where we've gotten. We should say, grace is what I'm holding on to. Grace is what redeems me and can bring me back. Grace can help me 
be faithful. Amen? I'm going to close with this story. It's a great story. I think it's true, but like anything on the internet, you never know. For 13 months during World War II, a young army lieutenant named John Blanchard was overseas. While there, he fell in love with a woman he never seen or met. Through a complex sequence of unlikely events, they had become pen pal with a woman named Hollis Maynell. As they corresponded, they began to open their hearts to each other and soon fell in love. When Blanchard received orders to return to the States, they arranged to meet in person on a particular night in Grand Central Station in New York at 7 p.m. Since neither one had ever seen the other, she told him to look for a woman with a red rose on her lapel. One minute before 7, on the appointed day, Blanchard waited nervously as people walked towards him. Can you imagine that situation, right? You've fallen in love with somebody through letters. You've never even seen them, but you know you love them, and you're just anticipating this thing. And he says, um, he said, a young woman came toward me. She was tall and slim with blonde hair and a pale green suit. She was like springtime come alive. I started toward her, failing to notice that she was not wearing a rose. And as I moved in her direction, she smiled and asked, going my way, soldier? Almost uncontrollably, I took another step closer to her, and then I saw Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a plump woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat, but she wore a red rose on the lapel of her coat. The girl in the green suit was walking quickly away, and I felt as though I was being split in two. So strong was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned me and upheld me during the long months overseas. And there she stood. Her face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle, and, and, and I did not hesitate. This would not be true, not be love, but it would be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful for. I squared my shoulders. I saluted. I'm John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. Even as I spoke, I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm so glad you could meet me here, I continued. May I take you to dinner. The woman's face broadened in a confused smile. She goes, I don't know what this is all about, she answered, but that young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And then she said, if you were to ask me to go out to dinner, I should tell you that she is waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said this was some kind of test. What was the test? The test was of, of being true to your word. This is the value we want you to think about today. The Bible calls it faithfulness. Being true to your word, keeping your commitments, fulfilling your promises. It's also what Webster calls faithfulness. And it is the centerpiece and the foundation of a great marriage. James 1 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised 
for those who love him. Amen. If I had the chance to speak to everyone in our country about the subject of marriage, which I think somebody needs to and somebody should, I would leave them and you today with these thoughts. To the young, I would say, remain sexually pure because this pleases God. It also remains the most precious gift you will give your spouse on your marriage day, wedding day. To those who are unmarried for whatever the reason, I would say before you marry, make sure your future spouse is absolutely dedicated to the principle of marriage fidelity, faithfulness. That person's worth the wait. And to all of us who are married, I would say whatever the state of your marriage is in, no matter how long you've been married, the first step in improving your relationship is implementing and practicing the components of complete marital faithfulness in all regards. Your feelings, your presence, your attention, and you know what? Intimacy. It's what we're called to do. And let me tell you, if the church was filled with people with unbelievable marriages, that alone would draw people to Christ in a way that we couldn't even imagine. Because I think the world's out there and they're just existing. They're coexisting in many places. And they really don't understand that what, what a true marriage should look like, feel like, and what that experience is really all about. It needs to be seen. It needs to be modeled. And it needs to be us. That's the calling. Because it's a picture of the gospel. Marriage should be fun and exciting. Because the gospel is fun and exciting. Amen? And that's who we should be. Let's pray.